be your first meeting. Again, the call-in number is 623-600-3766. The access number is 963003. There will also be a local station board town hall meeting on Sunday, July 19th at 2 p.m. after the WBAI Community Advisory Board meeting. The call-in and access number is the same. Call 623-600-3766. The access number is 963003. Thank you. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and WBAI.org online. The previous program was Advocating for Justice with Arthur Schwartz, which is heard Mondays at 5 p.m. It is now 6 p.m. Stay tuned for the WBAI Evening News coming up, uh, followed by Counterspin at 6.30 p.m. 7 p.m. is uh, Building Bridges with Ken Nash and Mimi Rosenberg and Housing Notebook with Scott Somer. So lock it, lock your dial on 99.5 FM as we continue on with the broadcast day. Here we go. In the news tonight, Florida has become the latest COVID-19 hotspot, but that didn't stop Disney World from reopening on Saturday. Black Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter protesters faced off yesterday in Queens. And the Washington Redskins are no more. In New York, I'm John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of The Independent, and this is the WBAI Evening News for Monday, July 13th, 2020. On Saturday, New York City marked its first day without a COVID-19 fatality since March 13th. However, the novel virus continues to run rampant in much of the rest of the country. The number of COVID infections in the United States has surpassed 3.3 million with more than 134,000 reported deaths. One of those deaths over the weekend was a 30-year-old Texas man who contracted the virus after attending a COVID party, thinking the virus was a hoax. Since June 9th, the seven-day national average of new reported infections has soared. Infections are rising in 40 of 50 states, with Florida alone registering more than 15,000 new cases on Saturday, the highest one-day total for any state. Saturday also marked the reopening of the Disney World amusement park outside Orlando. Here is one Disney fan sharing their joy over the reopening on a YouTube video. What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another video. We are here currently heading into the Magic Kingdom parking lot for the grand reopening of Magic Kingdom after they close for COVID. And we're pumped. So excited. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, a close ally of President Trump, has called the spike of infections in the Sunshine State a, quote, blip. Miami Congresswoman Donna Shalala, who served as Secretary of Health and Human Services in the Clinton administration, thinks otherwise. This is her speaking on Sunday on MSNBC. It's a disaster. And um, it's, a, it's a catastrophic failure of leadership of our governor, of our president. The mayors are scrambling uh, to try to do the right thing. We don't have contact tracers. Despite the surge in coronavirus cases, President Trump continues to insist that he wants to see a full school reopening in the fall. Schools will be open in the fall, and we hope that most 
schools are going to be open. Uh, we don't want people to make political statements or do it for political reasons. I think it's going to be good for them politically, so they keep the schools closed. No way. So we're very much going to put pressure on uh, governors and everybody else to open the schools. Here in New York, Mayor Bill de Blasio has announced plans to partially reopen the city's 1.1 million student public school system starting in September with students attending their physical school for one to three days per week and doing distance learning the rest of the time. Later in the show, we will talk with a school parent leader who is skeptical about de Blasio's plan. Speaking of City Hall, a sidewalk protest encampment on the east side of City Hall is completing its third week today with no end in sight. Occupy City Hall, now known as Abolition Park, began as a protest for deep cuts in the funding of the NYPD. Now, its participants are trying to model and educate about what a police-free society would be like. Here is one of the organizers. You just know, like, folks are unified, folks are on the same page, uh, and folks need to uplift the community agreements that folks just agreed upon maybe three minutes ago. So, hashtag Occupy City Hall, hashtag Abolition Park. Uh, yeah, it's a beautiful night. So, uh, we out here. The, the saga continues. The police are still there watching, but that's fine. But yeah, uh, come down to Abolition Park at any point. Uh, there's food, there's resources, there's water, there's community trying to create our version of abolition, our version of mutual aid. On Sunday in Bayside, Queens, supporters and opponents of Black Lives Matter faced off in a local park. Supporters of the NYPD marched through this suburban enclave, waving American flags with a blue line in the middle, as well as Trump 2020 signs. In other racial justice news, the owners of the Washington Redskins announced Monday they will be changing the team name following years of protests by Native American-led groups who deem the team name to be a racial slur. No word yet on what team's new name will be. Other professional sports franchises that still have Native American names include the Cleveland Indians, Atlanta Braves, Kansas City Chiefs, and the Chicago Whitehawks of the National Hockey League. Back here in New York, State Senator Zellner Myrie of Brooklyn has introduced legislation that would prevent all eviction and foreclosure filings for commercial and residential tenants until a year after any part of Governor Andy Cuomo's statewide disaster emergency is still in place. This would be the most severe restriction on evictions and foreclosures to date. And finally, the New York City Board of Elections has at long last begun to count the massive mail-in vote that accompanied the June 23rd Democratic primaries. However, as many as 20 to 30 percent of the mail-in ballots may be disqualified due to a technical error by the post office that left thousands of ballots without a postmark as required by New York state law. Final results in close races may not be known for weeks. We will be back with more after this short break. Junction, how's that function? I got three favorite 
cars that get most of my job done. Conjunction, junction, what's their function? I got and, button, or, they'll get you pretty far. And, that's an additive, like this and that. But, that's sort of the opposite, not this, but that. And then there's or, O-R, when you have a choice like this, That was Conjunction Junction, What's Your Function by Jack Sheldon for Schoolhouse Rock, an animated musical education series that aired during Saturday morning children's television shows on ABC from 1973 to 1984. You're listening to the WBAI Evening News presented by The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website now in its 20th year of publishing. I'm John Tarleton, the Indies Editor-in-Chief. Speaking of education, we'll now turn to Mayor de Blasio's recently announced plan to partially reopen the city's 1,800 public schools in September, which serve 1.1 million students. There are, there are a lot of moving pieces at the moment to this plan. To help us make sense of what's happening, we'll be joined in a moment by Caliris Salas Ramirez, whose son starts fourth grade in September at Central Park East One. She is the chair of the school leadership team at Central Park East which oversees the, de- the development of curriculum and monitors how the school's budget is spent. Salas Ramirez is also the president of the District 4 Community Education Council, which represents 23 public schools in East Harlem and advises the city's appointed school board on education policy. She's been deeply immersed for months in discussions about how the city's school system might reopen. She says at this time she will not allow her son to attend class in person. When school resumes, the parents of 1.1 million other New York City public school students will soon have to make a, a similar choice as well. Clearis, thanks for coming on the show this evening. Thanks for inviting me, John. Good to be you here. Bet. So uh, right off the bat here, uh, why, why are you choosing at, at this time to not send your child back to school when the new school year begins in September. What are the problems you see at at this point with the preparation for that reopening? Well, first and foremost, I want to say that a lot of other school districts have tried to open across the country. Um, And some have some daycare centers have also opened um, in the country and they have failed at their attempts to reopen these establishments. I don't believe that the mayor nor the governor have provided enough funding in order for our schools to open safely. The DOE has stated that they will provide schools with PPE, but it has not stated what the schedule will be if there's going to be temperature checks. It hasn't stated what they're going to do about ventilation in classrooms. They haven't stated if they're going to install sinks um, or have portable hand washing stations for children. Um, I think the instruction in general will be disrupted um, by all of these different protocols that need to be reinstated or that need to be instated in order for children and teachers to be safe. Um, In addition, I need my son to have some form of consistency and safety. And right now, the most consistent and safe thing to do is to keep him at home. Mm. And can you describe the the conversations that have been going on about the reopening of, of the schools here in New York, uh, who are the stakeholders who have been at the table and what, what have they been saying? Yeah, you can take us so, up behind the scenes a little bit. 
Absolutely. So um, I re- I just got off a health justice call um, that the Moore Caucus from the UFT has put together. Um, in that call, several teacher-led and parent-led groups were present, um, such as ACID, which is which advocates for integration of schools, the Yaya Network, and Sisters and Brothers United, um, which are groups that have ad- been advocating for police-free schools, um, Parent Action Committee in the Bronx, um, the Healing Centered Schools Network, uh, which is head by the Bronx Defenders, um, looking for healing-centered schools and have created a mode roadmap, as well as the Alliance for Quality Education, among others. And we all have centered the conversation in the fact that we don't feel like schools will be safe. Um, so parents are organizing, teachers are organizing. Um, there's actually going to be a rally at City Hall on Wednesday. The parents um, are, are organizing. It's a parent-led movement um, in addition to having conversations with educators because we both stand united in saying we need the money in order to support our schools for it to re- for them to reopen. With no money and no resources, it is just unsafe and an, an untenable situation for both educators, students, and parents. Um, we're putting our families at risk, and that's something it's, you know, yes, it would be great to go back to school. My son is one that is craving that those social interactions and wants to see his teachers and thrives in that environment. However, at this point, we are discussing a situation where it's life or death. It's just, it's just unrealistic. It's either you, you send your child to school and run the risk of them um, becoming sick or their educators being sick, or you keep them at home and try to keep them as safe as possible until there is a vaccine. Right. And, and, and this uh, uh, rally on Wednesday at City Hall, what time is that happening? Um, I think it's at 2 o'clock. Um, I'm currently not in the city, um, but it, it, it there should there will be social media on it. So um, feel free to look out for flyers that I will be posting on my Twitter, which is at drkysr. Okay, we'll we'll certainly be following that at the Independent as well. And also, uh, in reg- uh, can you describe a little bit? I guess going back to March when when the mayor was slow to close the schools down. Uh, why there is a, a sort of a lingering lack of confidence in, in his leadership on, on, on these questions? Yeah, I mean, I think that we knew at the end of February that things weren't looking well, that there were people flying in and out of JFK, coming into the city, and we were starting to see an increase in the rise of COVID. Um, and a lot of educators and children uh, and families were becoming incredibly concerned uh, with the increased likelihood of somebody potentially being asymptomatic um, and being present in schools. Um, And it wasn't until we started seeing cases pop up. Um, In fact, there there were schools where you did have positive COVID cases and the schools were actually told to not disclose that information to the public. Um, And so in turn, um, if we had just closed the schools, Two weeks ahead of time, there would have been a significant, we would have avoided any of these positive cases that have now come up. Uh, We know that over 100 educators um, have been affected by COVID. We know that in school communities. When you say affected, you mean they died, right? Have died, yes. 
We know that families have been um, gravely affected, even in a small community like mine, where we serve about 150 families. We, we had at least 20 cases. Um, nobody passed away, but we did have 20 positive cases within our school community. None, none of them, educators, but families. Um, so you have those families that are coming in, children that may be vectors that in turn can impact school communities. Sure. Um, and teachers were very vocal um, and were planning a sick out. Um, and it wasn't until there was a rise in that movement that Mayor de Blasio actually called for um, a closing of schools. I'm a CUNY professor and even CUNY closed before the DOE schools. Right. And, and, and last question, we'll have to wrap up here in a minute, but uh, I mean, there's a lot of talk about uh, when the schools reopen about the, you know, the academics and, and curriculum and, and, you know, students making up, uh, you know, lost ground uh, in, in their yeah. studies uh, from last spring. But can you also talk about what you also see as important in, in terms of how the schools need to be mindful of students' uh, mental and emotional needs as well at this uh, yeah. at this time? Absolutely. So one of the things that's really important to state is that you know, all of these standards of where students need to be are things that have to be rediscussed and reimagined. No child is really behind. There's only, you know, a couple of months can impact some progress, but we should have the ability to reimagine and restate what those standards are and with the understanding of what our children are living right now, which is they're go- they've existed in this time of a pandemic. In addition, they've existed in this time where there's a lot of racial unrest in the country, and the Department of Education serves a large population of Black and Latinx students that had have been disproportionately impacted by COVID, in addition to having these, this racial unrest in our communities. And so schools really need to focus on the mental health and support of both the teachers and students. Um, we don't have the money to support the counselors and social workers that we need in our schools. Um, we're concerned that children with special needs are re-traumatized um, in these spaces where all of a sudden they won't have the capacity to engage in the environment with their environment and their peers in the same way. Um, we're right. concerned that children are going to be coming um, just with all of these restrictions and not being able to engage. And so um, it's not just about the academic standards and rethinking that, but it's also thinking about the kind of support for mental health. Um, and for our most vulnerable communities within our schools. Okay, well, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, Kalira Salas-Ramirez, thank you for joining us this evening on the WBAI Evening News. And and for The Independent, I can say we'll certainly be following this, uh, this story closely heading into August. But thanks again for joining us tonight. Thank you, John. Have a great evening. You too. When we come back uh, in a minute, we'll talk about another key part of of partially reopening the schools, and that's child care. It's costly, and there's not enough of it to go around. So what are working parents going to do? As your body grows big. I believe we're having junction, a... junction. Conjunction, what's your function? Hooking up words and phrases and clauses. Conjunction, junction, how's that function? I got three 
favorite cars that get most of my job done. Conjunction Junction, what's that, that was more of a Conjunction Junction, What's Your Function by Jack Sheldon for Schoolhouse Rock, an animated musical education series that aired during Saturday morning children's shows on ABC from 1973 to 1984. You're listening to the WBAI Evening News presented by the Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. Now in its 20th year of publishing, you can find us at independent.org, I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T dot O-R-G. I'm John Tarleton, the Indies Editor-in-Chief. In our second segment, we'll continue to delve into the city's plans to partially reopen its public school system. For working parents, child care is going to be essential if their kids are only in class one to three days per week. But can that even work? Well, we're now joined by Elizabeth Pally, a professor of social work at Adelphi University and the co-author of In Our Hands, The Struggle for U.S. Child Care Policy. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thank you. You bet. So... For starters, can you describe the, the current uh, patchwork system of child care that exists here in New York City that's the starting point for the sure. situation we're in? Um, there are a number of different ways that children get child care in New York City. First of all, there's kind of most recently universal pre-K for four-year-olds. Um, in addition to that, some children who are three are eligible for universal care. So those are predominantly children who come from families who, where the families make 200% or less of the poverty line. Um, now, universal pre-K is provided in multiple kinds of settings. It's provided some in subsidized care settings, some in child care settings, and some in religious or private day schools, and some in school districts. So it's like it's all over the place. In addition to universal pre-K, there's, there are also subsidized child care centers uh, called early learn centers, and there are also subsidies for families who are low income. Now, in theory, it sounds like anybody who makes 200% or less than the poverty line would, get, would be eligible for child care. In fact, half of the children in the city are, but only one out of seven infants and toddlers actually able to access that care, about 45% of three- and four-year-olds. In addition to center-based care, there is also family care. So children under three, 91% of them are in family-based care, and that's licensed care in the city. Toddlers who are children from one to three, 70% of them are in family-based care. 30% are in center-based organizations. Um, the, those who are not receiving any kind of subsidy, the cost of care is incredibly expensive. So just on average, and that means a lot of people are paying more, um, the cost of care for children under two is around 16000 And uh, for children who are two to five, it's around between eleven and 12000 just to give you a sense of that. Right. And, and, and before we delve more into the, the present situation, uh, I want to look back for, for just a moment to better understand how we got here. Uh, in the early 1970s, when women began to enter the workforce in large numbers, there was a push in Congress to create a national child care system that almost succeeded. Uh, I believe you've written some about this. Can you talk about that legislation, what it would have provided and why it ultimately failed? Sure. So in 1971, the Comprehensive Child Development Act um, 
which was would have been a national network of federally funded child care centers with tuition subsidy, it would have been sliding scale, um, was passed by the House and the Senate. Nixon vetoed that. And it ultimately would have been that they had budgeted about $10 billion of today's money, and the goal was to expand it. Um, and when Nixon vetoed it, his idea was really not just to veto it, but to completely bury the idea of child care. So he talked about the Sovietization of American children and really tried to make child care seem dangerous, right? Like it was, we were going to indoctrinate our children. We weren't families. We're no longer going to raise their own children. And it, in many ways, they were successful because that after the Comprehensive Child Development Act was vetoed by Nixon, it kind of went off the radar. Advocates began to advocate for piecemeal things like expanding Head Start, um, more recently focused on pre-K expansion, you know, increasing funding for care for low-income children. But nobody really looked at or tried strongly to advocate for universal care. It just really didn't, didn't have any traction after that. Right. Well, that's unfortunate that that kind of uh, right-wing uh, uh, scaremongering uh, succeeded. Uh, in c- coming back to the present, with the city currently planning to reopen its 1,800 public schools for anywhere from one to three days a week, depending on the the, the condition of the school and how crowded it is, um, we're looking uh, potentially at the need for child care uh, massively increasing if parents are going to be able to return to work full-time. Uh, and is this even a realistic scenario? Given given, given what we have in the city right now? Yeah, I don't think it is. I mean, for one, you're talking about families, you know, first of all, one way that families have traditionally cared for children is grandparent care. That's very fraught in the time of COVID. But you don't want to bring your children who are going to school part-time to their grandparents' house and potentially kill your parents. Um and another reason that it's fraught is the child care workforce is paid on average nationally about $12 an hour. So in, you know, in New York, minimum wage is a little bit higher than it is in the rest of the country. But early care educators are making about $27,000 a year, which is only a few thousand dollars more than the federal poverty line for a family of four. So how are you going to get all these workers? In addition, many of them need training and skills to be licensed care providers. So um, it doesn't seem feasible. Also, your previous call, your previ- the woman you were interviewing just a minute ago, talked about really the need for additional funding for schools to ensure that they're safe. The same thing is true for child care, right? They need proper cleaning equipment. They need... Um, right. They need to make, the, make these facilities any- safe. And they need to train the staff to do it. Um, they've talked about some of the requirements in the city guidelines are limiting sharing of toys and supplies. That's a big additional cost to these child care agencies that, as I may not have mentioned earlier, are really run on a shoestring. Family care providers, these people are not, they don't have a lot of resources. They're not making a lot of money. In fact, right. um, we're, we're running out of time here, but we have, we have time for one more question, which or would likely go under. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, given all this, uh, what's your prescription 
for what should be done if schools can't fully reopen and there's not enough child care available to meet parents' needs. Uh, what's what's another uh, scenario here that we should be looking at? We need in to terms of what can be done. Support. We need to provide income support for families. In, this is already done in most Western European countries. In addition to providing universal child care on a sliding scale or heavily subsidized child care, they also provide family leave, and many countries provide stipends for a child. We need to do the same. You know, we need to support oh. parents who, like your previous caller, feels that they need to stay home to keep their children safe. Okay, well, we'll have to leave it there, but Elizabeth Powley, Professor of Social Work at Adelphi University, thank you for joining us tonight on WBAI Evening News. Thank you very much. You bet. Alrighty, so before we uh, sign off tonight, I just want to encourage everyone who can do so to give generously to WBAI and help keep shows like this on the air. You can give by calling 516-620-3602 or going straight to give to WBAI.org. Again, that's 516-620-3602. You can make a one-time donation or better yet, sign up as a WBAI buddy for as little as $10 per month. And Help keep WBAI beaming its signal to the far corners of the New York City area. Thanks for joining us this evening, and a special thanks to Amma Gagarin and Renee Feltz for their help with this evening's show. And we'll be back same time next week. What's your function? up words and phrases and clauses. Conjunction, junction, how's that function? I got three favorite cards that get most of my job done. Conjunction, junction, what's their function? I got and, button, or, they'll get you pretty far. And, that's an additive like this. On July 18th and 19th, the Concert for Cuba will be live-streamed from Havana on Hot House Global, uniting 50 of the world's legendary supporters of Cuba's humanitarian efforts during the COVID crisis. Join Danny Glover, Michael Moore, 